0: listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation and with me Joining me for the first time on the Driving Law podcast, my colleague and friend, Louisa Luce. Louisa is like an expert in all things regulatory. She has a background having worked for the College of Physicians and Surgeons, the College of Veterinarians, the Law Society. So she's an expert in professional discipline. So all of the lawyers that are listening, if you get in trouble, you know who to call. But she's also an expert in administrative law, because all of these college issues touch upon admin law, because the same stuff that we use to decide judicial reviews of IRP cases is the same type of law that is used to decide appeals and judicial reviews of the decisions of all of these regulatory tribunals. So I thought Louisa would be the perfect person to talk to about the rb decision from the bc court of appeal hi louisa
1: hi kata thank you for that great introduction i'm very pleased to be here and uh yeah let's talk about rb
0: yeah so for those who are regular listeners of the podcast and i know you're out there brandon hi um, ian and that's about the extent of our regular listeners no i'm kidding um (laughs) Uh, R.B. was the mystery B.C. Supreme Court case involving sort of the charter arguments and how they play out in the administrative context, Um, but you may remember it from the one where we were trying to figure out who R.B. actually is, because the weirdest thing in this case was that the person who was subject to the prohibition managed to get a publication ban and sealing order with respect to their identity. So The case is actually a really important case as far as dealing with a number of the, the charter arguments issues, but it's also a really fascinating case because who gets a sealing order over an administrative prohibition?
1: Yes, and w- without any, I-, I thought there'd be a bit of a sub headline about uh, the reason for it uh no, they, have they stopped doing that
0: they so what i understand i did get some information which was that the sealing order and the application for the sealing order were also sealed so even the reasons why the sealing order was granted ended up sealed you can't find anything related to court file um at all it's like completely locked down so very mysterious um, i do not know why but maybe some of the facts of the case tell a little bit of why possibly this person wouldn't want it out that they were the subject of this entire investigation so louisa do you want to bring people up to speed for those who've forgotten or who tuning into the podcast for the first time what happened in this case
1: Sure. So I would call this uh, the wrong, being in the wrong place at the wrong time case. Uh, uh, RB was uh, driving along, it was about 6.30 uh, in the early evening, and uh, his two, of, two uh, letters in his license plate matched a the license plate of a stalker. And uh, so a stalking report had been called in, uh, stalking with a firearm, in fact. And so uh, he was pulled over on that basis. And uh, as soon as he produced his ID, uh, it, the police realized they had the wrong person. And so he would have been let go except, well, he was he was handcuffed and his ID, ID was examined. And uh, then the police noticed a strong odor of alcohol on his breath. And uh, RB did admit to having consumed three Beer. I don't think the time frame is uh, listed in in the decision. So uh, it, the police switched the invest, their investigation from that of stalker to um, impaired. They managed to get a uh, call for and obtain an ASD uh, right within one minute, or in, in approximately one minute. So uh, yeah, so that bad. was uh, quick. And. Um, yeah, they they made a demand. RB refused on the basis that he uh, wished to have counsel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so seven minutes uh, in total from the time they asked for the ASD. Uh, did I get that acronym wrong again? I tend to do that. I get a little dyslexic with it. You got it right. Um, approved yeah you know, yeah, ASD. Um, so seven minutes after the initial call for the ASD, the refusal was... Uh, documented and the um, IRP was issued.
0: Yeah, it was It's a super fast investigation, particularly when you consider that they were also doing all of this stalking investigation. Um, for those who are nerding out on the case law, uh, RB was effectively advancing an argument that kind of started with a case, um, at least in this context, uh, called Kessler. Mr. Kessler was stopped for one reason related to expired insurance um, and registration for the vehicle, and the investigation shifted its focus while the police were dealing with him to the impaired driving investigation. He also refused, and they they argued that um, his rights were violated, well, I argued, it was my case, argued that his rights were violated on the basis of the fact that He hadn't had all of his charter rights complied with when the investigation shifted focus. And there's a bunch of case law in the criminal context that has said, yeah, if you know if you're not aware of the reasons for your detention and your right to counsel is triggered, then that suspension on the right to counsel that applies with the ASD um, continue or doesn't apply in the context of these investigations. So it was essentially the same argument that Mr. Rb was advancing, but he did not win. He did not win at the BC Supreme Court, and he also had the consistent level of success that petitioners appealing their unsuccessful judicial review decisions seem to have at the Court of Appeal, which is not success.
1: Yeah, and it, it took nearly three years from uh, from the prohibition to get the final decision in November, 2018 till July 5th. So yeah, two and three quarter years to run its gamut through the courts.
0: But I think this case is very important because it does engage in this analysis of what happens in a circumstance where your charter rights are violated, but you're dealing with an administrative context and a tribunal that is not a court of competent jurisdiction for the purposes of resolving charter issues. Um, And the, um, adjudicators are required to consider the charter, um, even though they don't have the right, like the authority, the legal power to determine whether or not somebody's charter rights have been violated and grant a remedy for it, they still have to look at um, whether uh, it's, it's reasonable to essentially consider the evidence that was obtained as a result of a charter breach. And this, uh, I think, the most recent pronouncement from the Supreme Court of Canada actually involved a law society decision. So we're connecting the law society and regulatory law back to driving law.
1: I think, uh, yeah, I also think that RB's um, legal knowledge is legal expertise, as as he pointed out that that he had. I think it was a bit of a double-edged sword for him in this case. Mm-hmm. He, um, he quickly realized uh, that the stalker investigation would go nowhere because he was confident he was not the stalker. And uh, so he, that put his mind at ease. And so he very quickly appreciated that the focus of the investigation changed in short order from a criminal code Uh, offense investigation to a Motor Vehicle Act um, investigation, if you will. And so he could not later deny that he understood that immediately uh, because of his legal uh, knowledge. So uh, even though he was not um, allowed to uh, access counsel, um, it was pretty clear that, that he knew that the scheme uh, that that applied to him was administrative law in nature. And so, according to Vavilov, charter values needed to be considered, but not uh, charter rights per se.
0: Do you think that the outcome would have changed if Mr. Arby had been somebody with little to no legal knowledge, like somebody that was here on a visitor visa who doesn't understand the Canadian legal system is a person of color and was wrongly singled out on the basis of racial profiling. Like imagine that hypothetical. Would would the analysis change? Would the outcome change? Because I don't think it would.
1: Probably not. Um, but it certainly would have been more of an a better argument because if if what he was he had been handcuffed and so the 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 fact of being handcuffed and if someone did not have had you know was of the the per- the type of person you described that person would be in a big panic and and perhaps um perhaps the police would have treated that person one would hope would have treated that person Maybe a little bit differently, and and would have seen the panic-stricken uh, demeanor, and and um, there might not have been such a quick uh, jump to the prohibition. I don't know, but in any case, there's there is no right to um, you can't fight these things any longer on a right to counsel. So perhaps the outcome wouldn't have been wouldn't have been different, but it wouldn't have gone down as quickly. I don't think.
0: The, I I found very interesting, there was an analysis of this issue and and you sort of raised it um, in your response to my last question, this issue of like the seriousness of the impact on him. Um, it was something that he raised in his argument, um, both in the judicial review and before the adjudicator in the judicial review, and then on appeal, that it had a big impact because he was handcuffed. There was the associated embarrassment with that, the mistaken arrest. Um, He claimed that the officers were being like aggressive with him. Um, And that this separated his case from those cases that came before where the courts have said there's this suspension on 10b it's minimally intrusive so it doesn't really matter because it's all in the context of a roadside investigation and your charter rights are suspended for that purpose i found it interesting that the court of appeal uh was critical to the extent that they ever are um of the adjudicators questioning whether the suspension of the right to counsel itself was minimally intrusive because that's not the analysis that you would do in the criminal context right it's not whether the suspension is minimally intrusive it's whether the breach is minimally intrusive Um, but the the adjudicator was essentially looking at whether the suspension of his rights intruded on his (laughs) rights in a minimal way but unfortunately the court didn't really, other than like criticizing that that method of looking at it, they then were like, but it doesn't really matter because as soon as they found that it was a valid demand as a matter of law, his right to counsel became suspended. So he didn't have access to a lawyer and you don't have to engage in an individualized assessment. But what I will say, and I always like to look for my like little silver lining in the unsuccessful court of appeal decisions, because it's all I can take to get through my life, (laughs) Um, is I like to look for the little silver lining. And I think here that maybe the 10B question is not entirely closed in this context. I think that what the Court of Appeal is saying is that the 10B inquiry is still alive if the demand is not valid or is of, questionable validity?
1: well um i i guess it it's rare to find an rb um, of such a sound legal mind apparently so uh the, the average uh, person wouldn't be as sophisticated and so perhaps one could argue that um Absent such sophistication, once you're in those handcuffs, boy oh boy, you're, you're just going to not get that fine distinction that R.B. was alive to. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps there is um, a duty on the police to um, make an exception to this particular case. Um, I can't help but think that RB was trying to have it both ways. Uh, he was he was arguing that uh, his you know he he was in a um, he was treated uh, poorly, but he was also saying, hey, I know what the law is. And so if he if as a self-represented litigant, um, just by the way he was arguing the case, um, I'm sure the court was not convinced that he was in any kind of a panic. You see. I think you know,
0: the decision to self-represent strategically, if you're arguing that your charter rights were violated and that this justifies your refusal or alternatively that the violation um, means that the evidence shouldn't be considered by the adjudicator, uh, if you go in there and you're like, I'm a super smart person with lots of legal knowledge, and I should, you know, I, I should have this prohibition revoked. It really does work against you because I'm not going to be sympathetic to you when you're like, I didn't get to talk to a lawyer, but also I know so much about this law <laughs> that I can write a factum and not have a lawyer. Like I, I'm a lawyer, but I struggled to write factums. So
1: I <laughs> was pleading you? the pleadings were perfect. <laughs> yeah. In this case, so. Oh.
0: I know they didn't criticize this factum like they usually do mine. <laughs> They've never criticized my factum in a written decision, just in oral argument. I don't think they listen to my podcast, but if they do, please don't be so mean to me. I'm not perfect. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, but the other thing I thought was really interesting about this case and something that I know you you are researching right now is an application to adduce fresh evidence, which he brought for the first time on appeal of the judicial review decision. So let's talk about that a bit.
1: Right, yeah. And the the fresh evidence, um, so he made a complaint to the police commissioner about the manner in which the police treated him uh, surrounding the stalking, um, uh, suspicion and handcuffing, So, it looks, there was some reference in in the decision that he did not obtain all he needed until April of this year. And of course, this decision came down this uh, July 5th. So, um, gosh, that's a long time um, from the incident to be gathering evidence. And what the court uh, disliked, was that uh, he was blatantly shoring up his case, as they said, with evidence that was so far uh, past the incident that it it was just, uh, the court saw it as just a, 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 yeah, just a bolstering of the case unrelated to the incident because temporally that was uh, what, two and a half years after the incident was was the, the gathering of his evidence. And no. there was no real connection. I mean, uh, who really cares uh, about the outcome of the, that, that was the other thing, relevance. What? Who cares about um, his, the outcome of his complaint to the police commission about the, the treatment? Um, in the grand scheme of things, with it being a seven minute process from being uh, handcuffed to, the, to to being handed the prohibition and, and let go, um, yeah how much could have gone wrong?
0: Yeah, I I mean, I was, at at the same time, I was discouraged to see the the court of appeals kind of really out of hand dismissal of the idea of fresh evidence because I had taken a case a long time ago um, up trying to get fresh evidence admitted that was showing a systemic problem in the calibration of ASDs. And I succeeded on judicial review, the superintendent appealed, and then my appeal didn't end up really getting heard on the merits of the idea of adducing fresh evidence or what the test would be for adducing fresh evidence on a judicial review. And in particular in a context where your constraints of time to hearing, time to decision are so limited that you can't necessarily obtain all of the relevant evidence like calibration information that's not submitted um they just dismissed it because the order the chambers judge had granted wasn't legally available i was like but there's bigger issues here um so i was i was disappointed to see again we didn't see like a significant analysis of when fresh evidence might be admissible like the best they say is that there are exceptions to the general rule and then they point to their their decision in in the air canada and worker compensation case um but then then essentially says that Mr. R.B. wanted to flesh out the circumstances surrounding his IRP to support certain inferences that he wishes to have drawn about the conduct of the police and the credibility and reliability of the officer's evidence. It's not proper to do so. From my perspective, it is quite proper if you get fresh evidence that goes to credibility, especially because as the court of appeal has recognized in other cases, the majority of these appeals concern adjudicators' assessments of credibility. So, if there's new evidence that couldn't have been t- obtained at the time, applying like the Palmer test that speaks directly to that, how is that not relevant? If there are decisions that are made about that without a fulsome record,
1: well, I, I mean, I think that I I go back to the the timing. Um, if there, I, I and I appreciate what you're saying about the short time frame, and so if if the um, the fresh evidence. <clears throat> would relate to the device, the calibration of the device, or to a health condition of of the person uh, being asked to uh, provide a breast sample? and if if those if there's a question about the calibration or the health condition, and it's just a matter of, gosh, we don't have weeks or months because we have to get this on, so but the, the evidence is already in progress, that's another matter, I think. and so, I, I'm not too. I'm not too concerned about the negative precedent of this case on fresh evidence in general, because this is so far. Um, I mean, yeah, the credibility, but I think he was just. I see it as uh, he he was starting to realize that maybe his strategy had backfired, that he was coming on. He was much too uh, confidently advocating for himself. And so that caused him to late in the day think, oh, how can, I, how can I neutralize my expertise? I've got to, how can I attack the cop's credibility after the fact? Oh, I'll make a complaint and see if the, you know. So it's such a strangely isolated set of facts. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's going to affect um, most fresh evidence applications
0: and and fresh evidence application on on judicial review of course are rare um they're supposed to be rare yeah. uh, i think that was one of the things that the superintendent argued against me on my fresh evidence case was like the floodgates will open <laughs> it's not gonna be floodgates that's yeah no floodgates meanwhile i had 200 cases in the wings that i was like I gotta get these in. <laughs> it, was, it was fine it was fine i'm not bitter uh, not five years later. Um, okay. So what is your biggest takeaway from the RB case, Louisa?
1: Um, well, I think that my biggest takeaway, other than trying not to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and counseling that, which is very haphazard, um, is that, gosh, is If the investigation is going to switch, um, because it was not, was not a, you know, a stop based on how he was driving or, or um, if the, if the scope of the investigation is going to change um, and the, the police do a sufficient job making that clear, and it is clear, then, you know, it's, um, you know, unfortunately it's, that's fair game it's fair game to switch and um and then not and then the the um the subject of the investigation unfortunately gonna have an uphill battle with charter rights. Okay. and it 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 sort of you know it kind of makes sense in a way because otherwise uh, as soon as someone is Pulled over, um, he or she or they could um, start to do something criminal, and then then the arrest would be pursuant to the criminal code, and then there would have then there would be a mandatory right to counsel, and so they could circumvent the scheme that way.
0: Don't Does that make sense? Offenses. Yes. <laughs> So Louisa's legal advice for those of you listening, don't commit criminal offenses to attempt to circumvent an administrative scheme.
1: <laughs> That's right. Thank you for putting that succinctly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't don't per- perpetrate an assault on the police officer. Uh because I don't think it's gonna get you um, your the right? right to counsel.
0: No., Nope. Don't do that. Just just be cooperative, blow don't answer any questions about drinking. There's free legal advice for everybody. If you're asked anything at the roadside about drinking, stay silent, don't deny, don't lie, be quiet. Um, my biggest takeaway from the judicial review decision is probably the obvious, which is a person who represents themselves has a fool for a lawyer. Because, you know, as you said, I think the strategy backfired. And even if you are the best lawyer at IRPs, which maybe this person is, I don't know, but even if you are, you still should get legal representation because, as much as knowing the answers and all the smart people information that is in this decision, as much as that's useful, a lawyer is also a shield because the court of appeal or the Supreme Court, or the adjudicator, if you have a lawyer, can't see into your mind, can't know what you knew, and you can protect yourself from the type of conclusions that were drawn from the sophistication of this person.
1: Yep. (laughs) I agree.
0: (laughs) Well, Louisa, I didn't tell you, but I do have a surprise for you. Oh, dear. Since you've listened to the podcast before, you probably know that every week we feature my favorite segment on the podcast, which is The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. And you get to stick around to talk about our ridiculous driver of the week, which is a pretty good one. Really funny. Uh, This is a person who was uh, stopped in Ontario for speeding. The first stop was 112 in an 80 kilometer an hour zone. And then 20 minutes later, was stopped this time going Forty-four kilometers an hour over the speed
1: limit.
0: Oh! Not only did so from, they not learn, they made it worse.
1: So from thirty-two over to forty-four over. Yeah. Wow! Nice. They ended nice. It by
0: more than ten kilometers an hour. How do you not like get the message after the first ticket?
1: I think it was just you know oh I've had my bad luck of the day now I'm free to just go for it
0: they also they also gave the police the best excuse at the second traffic stop when they were asked like you just got a ticket 20 minutes ago buddy they were like yeah i was really upset about that ticket and the only way to make myself feel better was to speed
1: oh <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice so sorry this is why you don't talk to the police oh dear yep so that was that that just it's is ridiculous to me it's a beautiful ridiculous driver of the week um if you get a speeding ticket please slow down after that don't speed up um i i have a, had several clients who've gotten like two tickets in a row in a very short time span it has happened more than once and in those circumstances uh when i go to court and i talk to the officers i was just like oh yeah we do that We set up a speed trap and then we wait and we stop people. And then we set another one up like a couple kilometers down the road because people will speed up again because they think, well, they're not out after this. I know where the speed trap is, it's back there. They already got me, they can't get me again. But no, the police are smarter than you think. Don't try and Mm. outsmart them to commit offenses. Like Louisa said, don't commit offenses.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Two wrongs don't make a right
0: exactly but two rungs do make a ridiculous driver of the week Yes. so thank you Louisa for joining me on the podcast and if people need to get in touch with you if they are lawyers and they're in trouble or if they are doctors and they're in trouble and for some reason have been listening to this podcast um or any other professional from any profession how can they contact you
1: Louisa H. at Acumen Law dot or at acumen.ca and you, be, or you, call, call the office.
0: Yep. You can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.